please open your Bibles to John 17. John chapter 17. We're going to be focusing this morning on the Lord's Prayer. And it's probably not the prayer you're thinking of, though. Uh, Many of us are familiar with the words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name as the Lord's Prayer. And this prayer... No doubt there is much to be learned from and and gleaned from this prayer, but there's one important note to be made in that prayer. That's not Jesus' prayer. Jesus can't pray that prayer for himself. One phrase in that prayer, forgive us our debts. Jesus has no debts to be forgiven. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, fully God and fully man. He has no need to pray for forgiveness like we do. So the Lord's Prayer really would be more aptly called the Disciples' Prayer or the Christian's Prayer. But this prayer that we're looking at this morning in John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. The very words the man from Nazareth some 2,000 years ago, he prayed these words. Throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, throughout the Gospels, we see again and again, especially in Luke, recording of Jesus going and and praying, but very rarely do we have an extended look at what Jesus actually prayed. But in in John 17, we have the longest and and by far most significant prayer recorded in Scripture. A friend of Martin Luther's, theologian during the Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, says this about John 17, there is no voice, no voice that has ever been heard, either in heaven or earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer. Luther himself described this prayer as deep, rich, and wide, that which none can fathom. Today, as a word of warning, we will not be swimming in the shallow end of the pool because the prayer before us presents the very heart of Jesus at at this climactic moment in his earthly ministry. So looking at this prayer is, is really no small task. But rest assured this morning, because what makes our time spent worthwhile in John 17 is not in my ability or inability to preach, or in your ability or inability to hear. What makes this time worthwhile is the fact that God is here, and God is speaking to us through His Word. Now, just over the last year, just for just over the last year, we've been in John, the gospel according to John. And it's been a wonderful journey as we've seen Jesus in his, in his glory. And we've, we've spent this time so that we might see him and we might know him. The first half of John is often referred to as the, the book of signs. And going through John 1 through 11, we see the series of seven miracles. And these miracles are not the point of what John is writing. Jesus is the point. These miracles are meant to point to Jesus. Author Jared Wilson says this, Jesus' miracles are the very windows into heaven. And through them, heaven is spilling into earth like sunlight through panes whose shades have been violently rolled up. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him heal the paralytic. We've seen him open the eyes of the blind man. We've seen him raise Lazarus from death to life. These miracles are not the point at all. They are meant to point 
to a greater reality in Jesus. They're meant to violently roll up the shades of these windows into heaven. These signs and works that Jesus performs, they are noticed by those around. Jesus doesn't do these in in secret. And Jesus confronts again and again the false religion and false hopes of the Jews surrounding him. And now, as we get into the second half of John, we approach John 12, the narrative slows. And the next several chapters encompass only a week of Jesus' life. The first 11 chapters, I mean, quickly, we go through 33 years of Jesus' life, two years of Jesus' ministry, and we slow to the final week of Jesus' life. And the second half of John is often referred to as the book of glory. This, this half of John, much of it is given to just a final evening that Jesus spends with his disciples over their, their final meal, meal together. And John 13, and John 14, and John 15, and John 16, Jesus has given himself to preparing his disciples for his departure. He describes what they will face in the future and provides promise after promise. Promises of peace and of joy, of the helper, the guarantee of their hope, the Holy Spirit. Promise after promise Jesus gives them. And it's at this point we come to John 17. So let's read together the words of God in John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. As we look at John 17 to help us get our bearings in this passage, we're going to answer five, five simple questions that you all are no doubt familiar with. In grade school, I remember often having to complete reports or, or answer questions related to who, what, where, when, and why. And you probably had to, too. I asked Christine, my wife, last night, I asked her, do you think it'd be kind of corny if I just kind of go through who, what, where, when, why? She said, well, if you did that every time, that would be pretty corny. But luckily for me, I don't do that every time. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. As we look at this text, we'll seek to answer these questions. And we're going to spend a briefer amount of time on the the where and when. I'm going to take them out of order. We're going to look at where and when of Jesus' prayer. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time on who, what, and why. So first, where is Jesus praying? The farewell discourse began in, in the upper room over this final Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus washed their feet. And then the last verse of John 14, verse 31, Jesus says, Rise, let us go from here. As the disciples leave the upper room, Jesus continues talking. And he discloses how he is, is the vine. And the disciples are called to abide in him. He tells of their coming opposition And he tells of the helper that is to come to sustain and preserve them. Jesus concludes these words just prior to our passage in John 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus and his disciples are headed together to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to face betrayal and arrest, and scoffing, and ultimately, he's going to face death. And on this road to a shameful death, Jesus declares victory before his disciples. I have overcome the world. And on the heels of this triumphant declaration, just prior to entering the garden, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays. And he doesn't just pray off by himself. He prays so that the disciples can hear him, so that we can hear him. So that's the where of this prayer, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Next question, when is Jesus praying? When is Jesus praying? Yes, I mean, he's praying in the context of this farewell discourse, the last week of his earthly ministry. But throughout John, we've seen these statements, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But look at the first words that Jesus prays here in 17 verse 1. The hour has come. 
That hour, which had been promised long ago and expected for age after age, that hour that had been waited on for 4,000 years, when Jesus said that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, that hour has come. That hour was here. But notice that it's at this point that Jesus prays. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, just get it over with, glorify me already, I'm here, it's time, let's do it. No, he uses God's sovereign control over all things as a reason to pray. And there's something I think for us to learn here as well. If Jesus prayed at this moment, how much more should we be praying continually through all of our lives? John MacArthur, pastor, says this, If the Son of God, who controls all things, if the Son of God, who is the ruler over all things, if the Son of God, who is sovereign over all things, if the Son of God, who knows all things, who has all power, is in a position of depending on God to fulfill all His words, how much more are we dependent on God? Oh, church, let us be a church filled with people who pray, who depend on God. And see God's sovereignty as a reason to pray. So that's when Jesus prays. Jesus prays at this hour. This hour that has finally come. And now for the bulk of the sermon we'll be spending who, what, and why. Who is involved in Jesus' prayer? First, notice to whom Jesus prays. That very first word, Father. Six times Jesus refers to God as Father in this prayer. Moreover, we see God the Father who is as the one who has given Jesus all things. Look at verse 7 with me. Now they know, the disciples know, that everything that you have given me is from you. Again and again we'll see in this passage the phrase, you gave me and you sent me. Jesus says these things about 16 times in these 26 verses, acknowledging God the Father as the giver of everything, the source of all that he has. Now, is that what our prayer is characterized by? Is that what your prayer is characterized by? Acknowledgement that God is God, the giver of everything, every good thing, withholding nothing that is good for us. Jesus teaches us to pray to a good Father who gives good gifts. And this God, the Father who, to whom Jesus prays, He is the source, the fountainhead, as Christ exemplifies. So let us pray to God as such, with expectant faith, acknowledging Him as the giver of all things. Second, let's notice who is doing the praying. To who is praying? To whom Jesus prays is God the Father. Jesus is the one that is praying. He is the Son of God. This this passage discloses much about who Jesus is. We won't try to cover it all, but let's notice a couple things. First, in, in verse 2, look at what we learn about Jesus. It says, you have given him, you have given Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. The Son of God, Jesus, has authority to give eternal life. And what is that eternal life? Well, verse 3 tells us right there, eternal life is that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, 
whom you have sent. Eternal life is found in knowing God. Found in knowing God as God and, and Jesus Christ as the sent one. As the one who has come to save the world. John 3.16, those familiar words. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should have eternal life. There are a couple more things we can notice about the Son. Look at verse 5 there. It says, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. And then there's this phrase, Before the world existed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His life didn't start the incarnation. Jesus Christ stretches into eternity past. But notice too, in the incarnation, He has, has given up something of his own glory. Jesus is the humble one. In the humbled one, in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus gave up the eternal glory he had in the Godhead to take on flesh and become God with us, Emmanuel. As the sent one, he is the humbled one and the submitted one, submitted in all things to God the Father. In a way that we we fall short. We can never do on our own. The world has never seen a man like this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Marvel at his glory. Third notice, who Jesus prays for. And this passage can be generally broken up into, into three sections based on who Jesus is praying for. First, in the first section, verses 1 through 5 or 8, depending on how you divide it, Jesus prays for himself. Next, he prays for his disciples. And then finally, starting verse 20, Jesus prays for all who will believe. So let's just notice a few things about this. First, Jesus prays for himself. Now, some people can espouse and think that the truly God-centered life, that person would never pray for themselves. They only pray for other people. They're only here to serve others. Just look at John 17 in the example of Jesus. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for himself for the sake of God's glory, but Jesus prays for himself. So don't be ashamed to pray for yourself. Second, Jesus prays for his disciples. This is the second group that he prays for. His disciples, the 11 that were with him after Judas has left. Even as Jesus is communing personally with God, those whom he loves, whom have been given to him, those who he walked with and are probably eavesdropping at this very moment. They are eavesdropping at this very moment on his prayer. He prays for them. More than that, think about with me who these men were. Think about who they were, these disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, insurrectionists. And these men, again and again, showed their weak faith and their doubts and their fears. And even in this preceding couple chapters that we've looked at in the farewell discourse, we see Peter ask, Lord, where are you going? Why can I not follow you now? Not trusting God. Thomas says, how can we know the way? Not believing his word is sufficient. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? This is, these are his disciples. Moreover, shortly after this prayer, all of them abandon him. Peter denies him. These are weak men Yet here, Jesus is before the Father in prayer. And look at how he talks about these disciples. In verse 6 through 8 here. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. 
and the end of the verse, they have kept your word. Then look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, your words, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. What Jesus describes doesn't look like what we've seen evidenced by the disciples in the farewell discourse. But J.C. Ryle says this about how Jesus views the disciples. Jesus sees far more in his believing people than they see in themselves or than others see in them. The least degree of faith is very precious in his sight. The least degree of faith is very precious in his sight, and we see that in this prayer of Jesus. Sense the tender care and compassion of our Savior as he prays for his disciples. There's something for for us here to learn. You may be here discouraged, aware of your, your sin and your failure and your shortcomings, Perhaps on the way to church this morning, you got in a conflict with your spouse. Or maybe you were impatient with your kids. Or maybe you were just discouraged at where you are in life and what God hasn't given you. Believe in Jesus. Take comfort in his words. love this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says this, The Lord Jesus did not despise the eleven because of their feebleness, but bore with them and saved them to the end because they believed. And he never changes. He never changes. What he did for them, he will do for us. So take heart. Take heart. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Only believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who has come and once and for all justified you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop just praying for his disciples. Jesus prays for, in verse 20 we see, those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prays in this prayer, For us. Jesus prays for all Christians throughout history. Think about this. When Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago, as he made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed for those who, who will one day believe. He prayed for you and me. This is remarkable. Notice, too, though, who Jesus does not pray for. In verse 9, we come across this seemingly odd phrase. I am praying for them, the disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. There is a particularity, a particularity to the intercession that Jesus makes on our behalf. And in our society today, which can be infatuated with with equality and love for all people and perceived fairness, this can be an uncomfortable thing to recognize, and even to teach. Jesus does indeed love those that have been given to him over and against those who are not of him, those that are of the world. And in one sense, this is a terrifying reality. Some people have called it the scandal of particularity, that God would specially love one group of people instead of another. But if this is our perspective, if this is your perspective We have to answer one question. Who are we to judge God? As Christians who have been given the very words of God in His Word, in the Bible, we see what is. We see reality in these words. This book is is true. So we believe it. And we preach it because that is what our tender and compassionate Savior prays. But lest we think that this is only an inconvenient truth, 
turn. Turn with me and marvel at the incredible grace of God for some. For some who are weak and defiled. Sinners and mockers. Some have been given to Jesus. This Jesus who has the authority to give eternal life. We sang this morning, grace and peace. Grace and peace, oh how can this be for lawbreakers and thieves, for the worthless, the least? What an amazing mystery that your grace, your grace has come to me. This indeed is marvelous, amazing grace. Jesus intercedes for us, for those that the Father has given him. So that's the who of this prayer. So we've looked at the the when, the where, the who. But what does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus pray for? In the course of these 26 verses, Jesus makes various requests of God. We're going to take a look at just four of them this morning. And as we look at these, I think we can find great comfort and hope and joy as we navigate life on on this side of eternity. First notice, first request Jesus makes is he prays for his own glory, for the Father's glory. And we see this particularly in verses 1 and and 5. In verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, he says, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is this glory that Jesus longs for? Pastor Sinclair Ferguson defines the glory of God as the external expression of God's attributes and perfections. The external expression of God's attributes and perfections. God's glory is an expression of who he really is. It's seeing him for who he is. In Exodus 34, Moses encounters God's glory. I think the verse is going to be projected here. 34 verses 5 through 8, Exodus. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Look at Moses' response. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. To know God's attributes and perfections, to see Him in His glory. Our only response is is reverent worship, reverent awe when we see God. And Jesus is asking that He be returned to this state, to the glory He had before the foundation of the world. Like we said earlier, through this incarnation, His glory had been hidden as He lived as an alien on the earth. This place, this earth is not his home. But the path to that glory that Jesus longs for, that path goes straight through what the world saw as folly and shame. Jesus' path to glory goes through the cross. As Philippians 2, 8 through 11 describe, it is in Jesus humbling himself, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It is there. It's there that God highly exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name. Jesus knows that the answer to this prayer that he prays right here, the answer to the prayer that he be glorified, means anguish and death. It means the cross. 
but he knows that this is where he will be ultimately glorified. Look towards the end of the chapter at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays for his glory, that God might be glorified, that we might see his glory. Is this how you pray? Do your prayers flow out of a desire to see the glory of God made known in all things, put on full display through your life or through your work or through your relationships or through your family? Do you pray that people might see the excellency of God's attributes and see his perfections and see that God is so much greater and so much better than all else? Is that how you pray? That's how Jesus prayed. Let us be like him and pray for his glory. The second request we're going to look at, Jesus prays for the protection of his disciples. Jesus prays for the protection of his disciples. In verse 11, Jesus prays this. Halfway through the verse, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then again in verse 15, we see towards the end of the verse, He prays that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't just pray for his own glory, which he could have. But Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. He knows his disciples are listening to this prayer. He knows of the fear and the doubts and the worry that are just wrecking their bodies at this moment. Jesus asked the Father, the one with all authority on heaven and earth, he asked him to protect them. Notice again what Jesus doesn't pray for, though. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This is what the disciples really wanted. They wanted to be taken out of the world. Can't we just go with you? Can't you just show us the way and we just go now? No. Jesus has work for the disciples to do. Jesus' ways, God's ways, are not our ways. Jesus is driven by glory, by attaining the maximum glory for his name, for the fame and renown of his name. He still has work for his disciples. He still has work for us to do. And while we do this work, Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes on their behalf that that we might be protected and kept from the evil one. Take heart here, brothers and sisters. Look at verse, verse 12, what Jesus prays. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them, not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That one who was lost is Jesus. I mean, Judas, Judas. Judas is the one that was lost. But look what Jesus says here. Not one of them, not one of them. Those that Jesus has been given are kept. They are kept, and they are protected and guarded. Guarded. So, brothers and sisters, you and me today, if Jesus did that then, how much more is he now able to do it now? If you believe in Christ, he will keep you. He will guard you until the day you see him face to face. He did it then, and he continues to do it now. Third, third request Jesus makes. What does Jesus pray for? Jesus prays for the sanctification of believers. Verse 17 says, sanctify them in truth. The word sanctify is a word that means to, to set apart, 
to, to consecrate, to make holy. Jesus is praying that those who are his become holy as he is holy. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We are, we are set apart for the work of God as believers. And this setting apart takes place as we think the thoughts of God, as we believe the word of God. And to be of the world, worldliness is suppression of this truth. It's rejection of God's gracious word to us. We should find encouragement here to give ourselves to God's word, be creatures of the word, to know his word, to love his word, to live in his word, because this is how we are sanctified. Again, J.C. Ryle says, the word is the great instrument by which the Holy Ghost carries forward the work of inward sanctification. More than that, look at verse 19. Jesus prays, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What, is this, what does this mean? That Jesus, for, for our sake, he set himself apart. He sanctified himself. He consecrated himself. Well, it's in Jesus' offering of himself that we can be sanctified. It's in his departure, his taking our place in suffering on our behalf that he's able to give us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell with us and in us and work through us. Because of the work he has done, we have the Spirit's power to now go and do. So be sanctified in truth. Fourth, finally, Jesus prays for the unity of all believers. Jesus makes this request throughout this passage, that, that they may be one. Look at verses 20 and 21 there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now note the unity that Jesus prays for is not about a rush to the lowest common denominator. It's not how many people can we get in here for the sake of unity. It's not a can't we just all get along. God is the God of love. So let's just put aside our differences and be unified. No, the unity that Jesus prays for is not centered on tolerance. It's not at the expense of truth. The unity is centered on on the reality of who God is. It's centered on truth itself. This unity is about knowing the true gospel. John later writes in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, It is seeing and testifying that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Our unity goes back to the vine. Our unity is about abiding in Jesus Christ. Our unity is about abiding in the One, remaining in the One, trusting in the One who can give eternal life. And it is our hope here that unites us together. Note as well that this unity is not just an internal unity. It's a visible unity. It's observable by all those around. Look at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our unity is seen and held together by common ground in the gospel. By loving 
and serving one another. By being committed to the mission and work Jesus has called us to. And by dependence on God for everything. That's where we find unity. It's a unity of will and purpose. That's what we're called to as a church. Because of the love that He has shown us, we love one another and live for Him. Jesus said back in John 13, 35, By this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, the call to us today, the call to Grace Church, is to love one another, to serve one another, to be committed to knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ and living out the implications of that gospel in our relationships, not holding grudges against one another, being quick to forgive one another and extend grace to one another. And we have the wonderful privilege of being in a church that does exemplify these things. But may the Lord keep us in these things and may we remain in this unity that sets us apart from the world. So now we've looked at what Jesus prayed for. We've looked at these four requests. Now why? Why does Jesus pray? The key to understanding this prayer is to understand glory. Earlier we borrowed a definition of God's glory from Sinclair Ferguson saying that that God's glory is the external expression of God's attributes and perfections. To know true glory is to know God as he really is. To know his perfection. To know his justice and righteousness. To know his unlimited power and presence everywhere. To know that he is the never-changing God, the faithful, the true God. To see these things, to know these things, is to see the glory of God. And this is Jesus' prayer, that he might be glorified. So as to glorify God. So that we might know this glory and be brought once and for all into it. The why of Jesus' prayer is the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards says this about John 17. His first words, Jesus' first words are, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. As this is his first request, we may suppose it to be his supreme request and desire and what lie ultimately aimed at in all. We consider what follows to the end. All the rest that is said in the prayer seems to be but an amplification of this great request. On the whole, I think it is pretty manifest, pretty clear, that Jesus Christ sought the glory of God as his highest and last end. Jesus Christ sought the glory of God as his highest and last end. The familiar first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What is man's primary purpose? What are we here for? The Catechism answers in this simple and elegant fashion. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Brothers and sisters today, do you believe this? Do you believe that taking part In this glory project, in God's glory project, is the purpose of your life? Do you believe that what is in Christ far surpasses, far surpasses anything this world has to offer? What Jesus has for us, what living for the glory of God has for us is better than all else. Do you believe that living for God's glory rather than your own is the path 
to eternal joy and everlasting peace. We live in a world that does not believe this. We live in a world where people pursue the desires of their heart. They want to be all that they can be. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus so deeply cares for those that are His that He wants us to know God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as He is. He wants, to experience as ver- he wants us to experience, as, as verse 13 says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And he wants us to know the love of God the Father, as verse 26 lays out. Moreover, he wants us to experience his presence in the here and now. He dwells with his own through the Spirit. So all of these prayers that we might be kept that we might be guarded and sanctified, unified, experiencing joy and glory. All of these prayers, they're for us. And all of these prayers give us a glimpse to what Jesus is doing even now. Hebrews 7, verse 25, says this, when I find it. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, He is able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The great hymn Charles Wesley penned, Arise, my soul, arise. He ever lives above. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. Even now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, praying these prayers for us. And at this hour, in his earthly ministry, Jesus comes to a point where he is crossing from his earthly ministry into this heavenly ministry. One in which he is interceding for us. And here in John 17, we get a glimpse into the content of these prayers. That we might know God. And we might behold his his glory. And we might have confidence as we face the opposition of the world, and as we face doubts and struggles and trials, our God is faithful. Look at verse 25 and 26. This is how Jesus concludes his prayer. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God dwells with us. And the way to glory, the way to glory runs through the cross. The way back to the Garden of Eden where God dwelled with Adam and Eve. The way back to the Garden. The way back to the way life is meant to be. The way back to reality is through Christ. And the work that He began The work that he began, he will continue and he will finish. And he will bring us to glory. I love the the hymn that says, See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured. Love untold. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, may we have eyes to see your glory. Glory that surpasses all else. 
May we believe that what is in Christ is all that we need. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus now intercedes for us on our behalf, praying that we be kept and we be guarded and we be sanctified and we be unified and we might know His glory. Lord, open our eyes to the wonder of who You are. Help us to marvel at You. And I pray that this week that we would believe, believe who You are. In everything that we do, may we believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, who has authority to give eternal life to all who believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.